Hello, friends, old and new. I'm Kara. We are in Le Vital Core Salon. This is a place where I hope listeners can find comfort through conversation. And I try to introduce you to really impactful women who are out leaving their stain on the world without letting bullshit or burnout stop them. Today, you're going to meet Teresa Wiggins. Since 2014, Teresa has been combining her passion for kids, families, and education by founding her business called Village Parenting. She comes to this work armed with 13 years of teaching experience and also being a mom. And working with both school and families, Village Parenting's guiding belief is that the best way to educate our youth is to do it collaboratively. Teresa teaches mindfulness and offers in-home behavior management support to families dealing with chronic behavior issues. She also offers consultation and training to schools on effective family engagement, as well as providing mindfulness instruction to both staff and students. This means students as young as kindergarten through seniors in high school. Village Parenting seeks to build bridges between home and school in order to improve the education for the whole child. Now that I just shared Teresa's bio and what her work is about, you might be thinking this is going to be a really kid and family-centric episode. Yes, we are definitely going to talk about Teresa's work and what it is and the story of how she came to it, which is something... For regular listeners, you know is always pretty fascinating to me, seeing how our work can organically come to be. One note for people listening who may not have children, there is so much in this episode for grown-ups too. My husband Craig and I don't have kids yet, but this is a conversation that I think I'll continue to be mulling over for a good long time. So, if you don't have kids as well, don't drop out, stay tuned in. Today with Teresa, technology was just being a jerk. Levels were wonky, Skype was acting up, we ended up having to switch over to recording via phone. This is something that in earlier episodes freaked me out. I hated disappointing my guests and not giving them a professional, comfortable, organized experience. And I want all of you listening to know that the Teresa you're going to hear me talking with is the same mindful, unflappable Teresa, even when we're both muddling through and just literally trying to physically make the wires connect so that we can have the conversation. I think that's really important for all of you to know. There's something else I want you to know about Teresa in our conversation. I didn't know this until after we finished recording, but Teresa outed herself in a really public way today in this show. I'm going to let Teresa talk about what that diagnosis was and what that meant for her so that you can experience the conversation like I did. However, I feel like it's really important to honor how courageous she was and appreciate her for that. Also, I want to thank Sandra Costello, who some of you may remember from episode 9, and her wife Brett, for bringing Teresa into my world. Thank you both so much for that. Before I elevate your expectations of this show to something that is 
out of the stratosphere. Voila. Hey, Teresa, welcome to the Vital Core Salon. Hi, Kara. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm glad you're here joining me on this really rainy day where both of us are. <laughs> yes. It's, it's a bright spot. Mm-hmm. It is. Been looking forward to this. Yay. Well, I have so many questions for you. You're a, I know you're a listener of the show, so you know that I am an endless fountain of them. And I want to dive in first so we have some context about the impact you're making in the world. And these days, you're an educational and behavioral consultant and the owner of Village Parenting. What yes. is it that you consult on? And is there a single thread that runs through your work? Right. So um, as you have seen, my work has a few branches, but there is a single thread. And I guess the way... I would describe it is that ultimately it's kid centric, um, but more specifically, um, really thinking about the education of the whole child, which is sometimes missing these days, but also um, really trying to help kids know what true happiness is um, and that it's not achievement oriented as so many of us seem to believe right now that happiness lies in our achievements. Before I sort of get into the branches of what I do, the reason there are these different aspects of what I do is because I have, I have three basic beliefs. One is that kids need boundaries. Another is to know that, like I said before, happiness is not about their achievements. And that I think kids really need to know that adults are partnering on their behalf that, that there is a true village out there working to uh, ensure their well-being. So the branches of what I do, um, I, I work privately with families. I teach a program called Triple P, which stands for Positive Parenting Program. And, you know, we can talk more about that later, but real briefly, it's, um, it's a, I go into people's homes, 10 to 12 sessions, um, and work with them on the sort of nuts and bolts of behavior management and combine that with uh, intentional parenting. Um, I also teach mindfulness. Ooh. Yes, yes, I love it. Um, I teach that privately uh, to families or to individuals, to adults, to kids. And I also, then this, this helps me segue into what the work I do with schools. I also teach mindfulness in schools. So I'll go into classrooms during the school day and teach basically 16 lessons in the classroom to kids K through 12 um, or to staff as well. And then I also in schools consult on family engagement. And, so what does that mean? Uh, that is, yes. So I know that that's kind of it, 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 it's worth pausing to define that family engagement is the true partnership between school and home so that there is, uh, you know, everyone working on behalf of the education of the child together, a true partnership. So uh, there's lots of ways that, that schools reach out to families um, that, you know, have been around for ages and ages, but, to really 
truly partner with families. We want to be um, listening to the particular needs of our community. So I'll help schools, um, you know, think about how to survey the needs first before just implementing a program, for example. Oh, super smart. Yes. Think about um, we're not just, you know, partnering with families by holding a bake sale. You know, we want to tie it to curriculum. We want to um, have families who are really the expert on their children be able to help inform us as educators about how to best meet their child's needs. And then also support families with the curriculum piece at home. So it's it's truly a partnership. It's, it's fascinating. There's so much research in the area of family engagement. And um, I think historically, family engagement has been seen as a nice to have, like, let's get all the curriculum in place. Let's get all of the, um, you know, the math, the reading, the writing, the the behavior management at school, the social emotional curriculum. And then we'll invite parents in to see all the great things we're doing. Instead of looking at it that way, you know, the, the field of family engagement is seeking to have schools realize that it's actually an essential ingredient. Um, I went to a training last summer that focused on the uh, metaphor of it's no longer the sprinkles on the cupcake. It's a baking soda. Um, <laughs> That's a great the, metaphor. Recipe. Because yeah, it's, and, and it's true. And I'm outside the educational space. And for people listening mm-hmm. that don't know me personally, like my husband Craig and I are yet to have children. So I'm mm-hmm. coming at this sort of blind. So your world is a little bit mm-hmm. new and wild sounding to me some days. <laughs> but I I really dig that metaphor. And I, I dig that what you're trying to do is such a 360 degree approach, right? Versus, mm-hmm. hey, look at this whole curricula that we've put in parents. And, mm-hmm. you know, just come observe it. Like what you're asking right. for is everyone to be co-creators in how you want the children to, to grow and behave. Right. 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 And, and I think, you know, one, one of the things that I, um, I have realized is that understandably so some of the stakeholders in this situation are sort of in a defensive position on their heels. You know what I mean? Like, well, we are doing a good job at school and parents are like, well, you know, I, I am, I am doing my best and I want everyone to go, yeah, we are all doing our best and let's partner here instead of feeling like, you know, there's something to feel defensive about. Like, no, we all have the best interest of children at heart. And And the um, idea of you're all doing your best, but if you're using a saw to try to bang in a nail, like that's not going to work. So it, I mean, do you find in your work that sometimes it's, from your vantage point where you're kind of in the middle, I'm assuming, between all these stakeholders, mm-hmm. you're recognizing like, yes, teachers, you are doing your best, but you are you could be yes. using tool X, Y, and Z. And yes, parents, mm-hmm. you're doing your best with the skill set you have. And, you know, last time I checked, 
you know, when you get pregnant, you're not sent to some sort of formal training on how to be a parent, right? Like everyone's kind of winging it. So is it a matter of then, hey, parents, you're doing your best over here, but did you know about these tools that exist or this philosophy that exists or this theory that exists that could be applied to help you do an even better job? Is that kind of what you're saying? yeah, and, and also from the, the school-to-home bridge of family engagement, just helping parents understand sometimes where the school is coming from, you know, like whether it be, um, you know, policies they're bound by legally or how things are are addressed through curriculum that isn't easily seen by parents, if that makes sense, you know, because sometimes it's it's so easy to make assumptions about what it's sort of like on the other side (laughs) Um, on both ends. That's, I guess that's what I'm saying. You know, it's like, it's easy for parents and for teachers to feel like their, their role is underappreciated and that, does that make sense? It does to me. I think what I'm hearing or like what I'm kind of taking from it is, I mean, I guess I always think about it this way, like so many of our problems in family Mm -hmm. engagement, in politics, in the world at large, and from what I see, you know, with with clients, even just in the interpersonal relationships that we have around us with, you know, partners and children and bosses and coworkers, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff comes up in my work a lot. And I think Mm -hmm. I am a deep believer in communication. And I know sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, friends that have known me for years are like, Kara, you could talk to paint drying on a wall and not run out of things to mm-hmm. say. So sometimes I have to right. come at it from a different approach. But I think so much can be solved when we stop assuming. And I mean, everyone knows that expression, right? Like, don't assume. It makes an ass mm-hmm. out of you and me. And it's, mm-hmm. I, I firmly you know, since being a teenager, I think, when I first picked up that phrase, I was like, yeah, there really is something to this. Right. And I, I think right. when we when we stop assuming and we actually just communicate with the other parties involved in a situation, we right. can get some really powerful stuff done. And, you know, when yes. we understand both the intention and how things are playing out, it can become a conversation that's maybe uncomfortable sometimes, but can really break a problem apart. Yes. Yes, I agree. So I was a classroom teacher and a special educator for 13 years. I started at the middle school level and then uh, moved or got demoted, I guess, to the elementary level. Um, so I was kind of moving backwards while my students moved forwards, but I taught for, um, special education for eight years and then was a classroom educator, classroom teacher for five years. And I, at the end of the 13th year, I just had my third child and I, it, it was sort of just becoming that question of, I was paying as much for childcare as I was. You know, it, it the the balances weren't making sense, um, and so I just decided to take a breather and say I'm going to stay home for a year um, and breathe 
you know, I have a, a three small kids and I'm going to take a time and then get back to teaching. And that first year, I really, that's, I, I enjoyed that time with my kids and I really, I found myself like driving around running errands and just dreaming about like getting back to the classroom uh, and all the things I would do. And that was always my intention was to get back to the classroom because I really love it there. And then my oldest was starting kindergarten at the same time. And I got really excited to be a uber supportive parent to the schools. Um, and I had these kinds of parents and also wished that some parents would be like this, but I just wanted to like thank the teachers every time I, I had a chance or, um, just like volunteer in, um, ways that any way that I could and, um, totally let the teachers know I understand how hard they're working. And I did that and I loved it. I was really involved. Um, but what I found out is that even with that, that attitude of just going in to be super supportive and, um, understanding and, uh, and all of that that I just said, that I still hit some walls. And they weren't crazy difficult walls, but it was like, oh, I, I feel a little misunderstood or, oh, I feel um, like they're not fully seeing my child. Um, and again, I mean, my, I, I have no complaints about the education my children are receiving. We're talking about small moments here. But it made me realize that, you know, it's so easy to make assumptions about each side. And what if there were no sides? What if we all just came to the table and truly partnered on behalf of our kids? And so I really kind of started to dive into this concept of family engagement and what it could really mean with all the research that's out there to kind of go back to it's the baking soda, not the sprinkles. And, and what I love about this part of the work that I do is that I, I get, I get both angles, you know, like I'm, I've been a teacher. I know, I know how hard it is. I know how, um, all consuming it can be like that job could truly never end if you didn't let it. And you also understand how hard the role of a parent is. Like now you're seeing things from both directions. A hundred percent. I'm curious, Teresa, when you started doing this work and coming to teachers and trying to have these kinds of conversations, I know teachers that I've had for clients in the past are so burnt out. I mean, most of the Mm -hmm. women that I talk to are incredibly burnt out before they even think Mm -hmm. about investing time and energy in themselves. So Mm -hmm. I know I'm not speaking to a lot of teachers that are not burnt out or are further down the path. Um, I guess when you began to approach teachers and trying to have these open communications, was it met with hostility? Was it met with curiosity? Was it like, this is just one more thing kind of energy? What was that like? So I, you know, it's so interesting the way you phrase that because I, I know that feeling like education, there's so much coming down the pike constantly of now we're going to try this this year and now we're going to try this this year and then 
sometimes it's short-lived and it feel like, oh, we're going to do one more thing, add another thing to our plate. And so there's a couple of things I really, is part of what I really want teachers to know about me is one, I get it. I've, I've been there. I'm, I'm a teacher. I know how hard you're working. And two, the ultimate goal of this, in fact, anything that I do with Village Parenting is to not add anything to your plate. It's to make sure that what's on your plate is the most um, efficient way to help the child. So let's discard some of the family engagement practices that aren't really contributing to the education of the child. And let's tweak the ones you're doing that do work to um, really make them baking soda and not sprinkles so that and, and I have teachers imagine, you know, what would it be like to feel like the parents of your students are in full partnership with you? And they kind of just breathe a little easier and go, that would feel great. And that is not to say that they don't, that parents aren't in partnership, but again, to get all parties off of their heels. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That makes sense yeah, to me. So to kind of, to kind of say, you know what? Let's let's trust that parents are here to fully um, support their child first and foremost, but also believe in what you're doing, because I think that for the most part, that's uh, first of all, every parent wants the best for their child. That's the number one belief, and number two, for the most part, parents are very very supportive of you know education in general. Um, it's not to say that there aren't difficult conversations that need to be had or that there are disagreements between, you know, school staff and, and parents and how they see things, but that we can have those part, kind of conversations in a partnering way. So I'm curious, how do people get to you? Like, is when your phone rings, is it likely going to be a teacher or is it likely going to be a parent? So... It depends. So I actually... (laughs) I realize um, what a giant question I just asked you. Sorry about that. (laughs) No, that's okay. I mean, it depends. I mean, we've been talking mostly about the family engagement piece. And in that scenario, I will have um, school administrators reach out and say, hey, you know, we need some support with, you know, providing some parent workshops or, um, you know, some staff training in the area of family engagement or communication with parents. So that's more of a, you know, school staff that might be reaching out, not necessarily an individual teacher. Um, and, and also the way I will often get involved with schools or schools looking to hire me for mindfulness um, education. So it's more on the uh, administrative level that they'll reach out like a principal or director of student services And then my phone also rings from parents looking for behavioral support at home with their children. Um, And from there, I will often support, you know, parents with some of the communication they need to do at school. Um, Does that make sense? Yeah. So what I'm hearing is it's a mix. It might might come from either direction, but someone's throwing their hands up and saying like, all right, we need a third party. We need... We need some yeah. help here. We need some extra hands. If you're the school system, right. it's the school system 
calling yep. and parents sound like they're calling when like we got a kid that's acting up in yep. X number of myriad ways. We need some tools, exactly. we need some help, we need some insight. Exactly, exactly. Got it. So I want to come back to your story. So you are home, you've got three kids, you're still dreaming about the classroom. How did the seeds of village parenting start coming together? I imagine this was sort of coming in dribs and drabs and pieces. And yes. Could you talk about that? Sure, absolutely. So like I said, you know, I was home and I was super excited to have, you know, my first school age child. And um, I just started to do all of the things that I knew would support her education. So I had routines posted around my house (laughs) for, you know, getting out the door in the morning, or um, I had routines for homework and a, a homework um, supply kit ready to go in a good spot. And my daughter helped me put that together. And, um, she was, you know, a part of that. And I started to have conversations with one of my good friends who I met as a, you know, a fellow mom. And she was like, um, what is it that you're doing here? (laughs) What are all these, you know, lists and schedules and what, you know, you, you, you have this perspective that I don't have. Why? And I started to talk to her about all the ways we can be supporting our child's education at home. That's not like, why would parents know that? Right. And exactly. Yeah. So she said, I, she said, Teresa, I just think you have this body of knowledge that people need to know about. So it got me thinking about really supporting families with the quote-unquote home curriculum, you know, how to support the education that's happening at school. And then from there, I, I realized how do we also have help schools communicate in a partnering way with families. So it's that two, two-way uh, street. Um, but, you know, that same friend at one point uh, was having an issue, wasn't a huge issue, but had questions for the school. And because she trusted me in this manner to to know sort of the background of what the school might be thinking, she said, could you just look over this email before I send it off? And I did. And I was like, look, I totally get what you're saying, but here's what you might not realize about what the school, where the school is coming from. And she's like, oh, I never would have known that. And so I just helped her tweak it and helped her ask questions in a, like I like to call it now, in a villagey way. <laughs> and she's like, thank you. And it just, it, it did not become an adversarial process. And that, I mean, that right there is the key for me. I just want to help kids in a villagey way, not in an adversarial way. Wow. I feel like we are such sisters in terms of like approaching (laughs) things granted we're working with very different populations but I love hearing this and I love what you're doing in that space and I totally get it and and really vibe with it because it's so important it's like once that once that relationship becomes adversarial it's it's game over like there's no longer room to be curious there's no longer room Playful may not be the right word, 
but it's an intention that's right. important in in my right. work in my world. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then just being able to negotiate, like you yes. you can't have a conversation if the other person's already like got their fingers in their ear and is just thinking la 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 la, right? Which is the really mature thing that happens in negotiations, right? Um, <laughs> right. This is so fascinating in terms of the the work that you're doing. And then the picture we've sort of gotten so far is that you're in the classroom, you know, or maybe you're you're talking to moms and you're in the classroom, but you're actually going into people's homes. How is that a little bit different? Like, are you sitting down with the parents and the kids at the same time or sort of alternatingly? Like, what does that sort of look like? Well, so first off, I you know, I really the original idea of village parenting um, at the very beginning was just to support that home curriculum. And then I thought, you know, as a teacher, I really um, prided myself on my classroom management, my classroom behavior management and building of a community. That was what I loved the most about classroom teaching. And I thought, you know, I know a lot about behavior management, but when I talk to these parents, my best guess is they're going to say, oh, that's great to have a homework space, but my kids, mm, some of them, they, they just don't listen when I tell them it's time to do homework. So I went and got trained in this program called Triple P. I did a lot of research into different programs, and this was the one I chose. Um, and it's a globally used program. Uh, research-based program developed out of um, the University of Queensland in Australia. And it's, it's this systematic approach to teaching uh, behavior management based in positivity. Um, and so, you know, like I said I'm, that earlier in the podcast, I'm, I'm in people's homes from 10 to 12 sessions. What I tell people is, I, I mean, I believe in the effects of this program um, if parents are committed to doing this, I tell them, I'm, I'm not leaving until you feel better. You know, if you're calling me and you feel chaotic, that there's a lot of yelling in your home or that kids just aren't listening and there's a lot of negotiating happening and it just doesn't feel right, I'm not leaving until that feels better. And that means, you know, we go 15 sessions, we go 15 sessions, that that's it. But I... I haven't left a home until they feel better. And, and then they look at me and they go, we feel better. <laughs> like, good. Um, because you should. This is a great job to have. And I want you to feel good doing it, to, to, to feel good parenting. Um, and does so, that seem yeah. mind-blowing when you initially talk to people? Because I know in my world, yes. when I say like, we're going to start and we're going to bring you some relief. And I know you're coming Mm -hmm. to me for weight loss or that you Mm -hmm. haven't slept since 1997, you know, a full (laughs) night of sleep or whatever the issue is. But then as you probably know from your work, when you start asking questions and you start trying to understand what's going on with the children, Mm -hmm. with the parents, with, with any Mm -hmm. other stakeholders, Sometimes, like, what the real problem is, is something totally different. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, do you find when you're initially talking to people, I mean, do they look at you sideways when you say, I'm going to bring you some relief? Because I know I get that. Like, I'm pretty sure the audible silences are also, you know, on the other side of the phone call are usually, like, met with a a cocked head. Like, what? 
relief. What? <laughs> right. And, and that's part of the reason I say I won't leave until you feel better because people have, by the time they've called me, they've often tried, you know, you know, so many things and they'll just say, they'll say to me, nothing works, nothing works. And, um, you know, that's why I say, well, I won't leave until you feel better. And then they, they're like, well, I guess, you know, worth giving it a try, you know, but yeah, they, they think, and then as the program starts to work, I'll often hear, I don't know why, but he or she has been a lot better this week. And I'm like, well, what have you done? They're like, well, we tried this stuff, but I think it's a fluke, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And, and then I say, well, you know, certainly, you know, things that are difficult in our lives can be cyclical and we have better weeks and, and worse weeks. Let's see if this trend continues. And then lo and behold, the trend continues and things get better and better. <laughs> I was just going to say, do you have like three month flukes? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, I, I truly love this work. I really do. I just, I love bringing families the peace they deserve. Um, and, and it's their work that really does it, of course. Um, and I, you know, I, I weave in what they want for their family, right? So it's not, it's not what I want for their family. It's, well, I, I envision a family that's really nature oriented or that, you know, um, that, that we don't, um, that we have time to do all the things we want to do, which are X, Y, and Z. I'm like, okay, then that's important to you. Let's set that intention. Let's map out a way to get there. Wow. We really are doing such similar work in different ways Mm. where I love that you're talking about this piece of it. Cause one of the things sometimes when I'm speaking to potential clients and I look at them and I'm like, what's an important outcome for our work together for the next six months for you. And sometimes Mm -hmm. they look at me like, you're not going to tell me. Like, I don't know if I project an energy of being bossy or like coaching's just misunderstood right. <laughs> some days, but it's, you know, I've had to have some of those difficult conversations in the upfront where it's really like, no, I'm in the like, it's like a driver's ed car. I'm in the passenger mm-hmm. seat with a brake to make sure yeah. we don't spin out of control or anything totally mm-hmm. crazy happen. But yeah, here's the keys. You're in the driver's seat. I, I'm not driving right. your life for you. So right. it's it's funny to hear that you're seeing that in your work too and and how you're mm-hmm. having to like really dig that out and and get people to be intentional. Right. Right. And you know, I think that parenting is and then, you know, speaking from experience, it's such a deeply personal job that people feel like, well, I should just have the instinct. I should just know how to do this. And I should just know because they're my kids and someone shouldn't have to come and, and, and help me parent. Like, I love them so much. Why can't I just figure this out? And, you know, I'm very clear with clients that, like, I'm not coming from the perfect parenting pedestal. Like, that's not what this is about. This is about why, why would anybody have knowledge of behavioral principles just because they're becoming a parent? You know, why, why would you know how to set your child up for success at school? You don't have experience in education, you know? And so it's like, it's about, you know, I happen to be a person with some expertise in this area, 
that's also not perfect, and I'm here to help you figure out how to learn these strategies, period, you know? Um, And that's an important point, Teresa. Let's talk about that for a second, because to anyone listening, they might think, oh my God, she sounds like a perfect mom. Like you're talking about charts and schedules and ways to encourage the kids to do homework at home and all of these Mm -hmm. things, which to some moms listening and especially working moms listening, that may sound pie in the sky. But one of the things I read on your website was that sometimes you yell, (laughs) right? That some days it's only a philosophy and that you're actually right. a real mom on terra firma as well. Yes, absolutely. What, what is that like? How do you balance that? Well, it's so funny that the roles that we end up playing in our lives, right? So I, early on when my kids were um, pretty little, like my oldest was two, three years old, and I also had a baby and the third wasn't even born yet. I really spent a lot of time obsessing about whether I was a good enough mom, like really obsessing. Um, and you know, I, I'm in therapy and I would say to my therapist, like, I don't know. you know, I, 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 um, I responded this way to what she said and I'm just not sure because, you know, I, am I giving her enough space to be who she, you know, I was like really obsessing and, um, it turns out that was, uh, one of the ways my OCD was showing up, which we haven't mentioned yet, but I'm sure we'll get to it. Um, but Well, let's get to it. So we're all on the same page if you're open to talking about it. Definitely. Um, so I do have OCD and um, I will, I'll swing back around to that, but I, I really, I spent so long obsessing about whether or not I was a good parent. And then to learn that, I, to really embrace my current parenting philosophy, which is I don't have to be perfect, that my kids are not mine, even though I just called them my kids. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They are their own human beings, and I'm meant to guide them, and I'm not meant to do that perfectly because I'm also a human being that I'm just going to do my best to succumb to the moment with them, to greet them where they're at. And I guess what I've come to is just laying it all on the table with my kids. So I'll say, like, oh, you know what? Mommy snapped just then. Or I, I managed that in a way I wished I hadn't. Did you, you know, or, oh, you know what? I'm sorry, Mommy's a little grumpy this morning. And sometimes they'll say, oh, we didn't even notice, <laughs> which I don't know <laughs> if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But to just name it and give them permission to know I'm not perfect and I don't expect them to be perfect and we can just talk about it all, just open the whole thing up. And the more I do that, I let go of this need to be, I don't know, perfect. Does that make sense? Yeah, it it sort of reminds me of concepts around meditation right it's like sometimes like just having the thought and witnessing the thought and seeing the thought for what it is as just a thought then eradicates its hold on us right like we don't over identify with it anymore and it it makes me think of something i heard in a meditation this morning like when i was doing a guided one today 
Mm -hmm. you know, of like how we can get caught up in those loops sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you're just taking this approach of like, okay, let's just name it. It is what it is. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of wires are crossing in my head as you're talking about this, because I'm thinking of it from a meditation sense and a mindfulness sense. Mm -hmm. And then I'm also taking it through the lens of, I've been watching a ton of Mr. Rogers lately. I think like with the docu coming out, and I've always been a fan. Um, mm-hmm. I remember an old colleague of mine, literally whatever co-working space he was in, he had like a framed photo of Mr. Rogers, like at whatever desk mm. he was working at. And sometimes we would work late and we would talk about like our favorite Mr. Rogers episodes. And so I've had a long fascination, but I think just having oh, seen the so documentary sweet. recently and then thinking about this, what you're saying, I'm really jiving with and understanding mm-hmm. after witnessing that, like watching someone as an adult name really complicated emotions and feelings and talking to kids as if they're little people, like in language yeah. that they can understand, but, right. but as individuals, not so-and-so's kid or through the parents in some way, like, but just really directly mm-hmm. interacting. And I picture you having somewhat of a similar approach. Yeah, Maybe? I think I do. Um, yeah, no, I think I do. I just, I really just try to help them name what's going on, but also allow them to, um, I don't know, just see things transparently, as transparently as possible. Um, just, I, I'm a big believer in, sort of striving to increase emotional intelligence, to teach them about their own patterns that I see emerge, um, to teach them, to model for them. Oh, you know, mommy's upset right now. I'm, I need to take some deep breaths. And to see that it's not just uh, a random strategy I'm giving, but I'm also using. Um, and, you know, the other thing is to know my own weaknesses. So, you know, along the... Um, the OCD route, you know, if I was left to my own devices, I think I would just like wrap my kids in, in bubble wrap and like not have them leave the house, you know? <laughs> so I, I'm like, I want them safe at all times and protected from anything that could possibly go wrong. And I know that that would be sort of my default wiring. And so I really, I try to, again, name that, see that and, um, allow other people in my village to help me push that comfort zone. And sometimes that's my husband. Sometimes it's a friend. Um, I actually have a, a, a good friend who knows that this is part of um, the way I explain this concept. Is I, I use her story. I was sitting on the playground with her, and she is so creative and allows so much exploration for her own children in a way that is, it pushes my comfort zone, but I admire in her. And so we're sitting on the park bench together and our kids are climbing around. And I turned to her and I said, so my daughter's on the top rung of that, you know, jungle gym. And I'm every instinct in my body is telling me to go tell her to get down. And she's like, I'm watching her right now, Teresa, and she's okay. And this is how I know she's got a smile on her face. She's sure-footed. She's not asking for your help. So just breathe. 
she's okay. Just stay on that bench. Do not get up. <laughs> Teresa, this and, is important. Can I? Yes. Do you want to finish or can I jump in with a question? No, no, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Okay. I think this is incredibly brave of you to share with me, but I think mm-hmm. it's really courageous, I think, to have those kinds of conversations with others. And I guess two questions, and they're all sort of log jamming in my head right now. The first part <laughs> of that is how did you get to a place where you feel comfortable taking those questions outside of your own home, right? Like there's talking to your husband about it. There's talking to your kids about it. And then there's talking to people outside the family unit and asking Mm -hmm. those kind of questions and sharing those kinds of observations about yourself. So in this rather long-winded way, like one, how did you get brave enough to take it out of the home and take it to other people? Because I think that's something I hear in my work, like, people feeling like, well, I can't, I can't switch up Mm -hmm. the relationship like that. Like I can't have that kind Mm -hmm. of full disclosure in this, Mm -hmm. you know, friendship where we've worn these, these carefully crafted masks for 20 years Mm -hmm. or five years or whatever the length of time is. And then I guess secondarily is when you've shared yourself in that sometimes vulnerable way, what have been people's reactions? Like, do they look at you like, what the hell is she talking about? Or are they exhaling kind of like, oh, we can really talk at that level? So I'll start with the second part, the exhale. Um, And that's my read anyway. I mean, they might be like judging me inside, but I I don't know. I think that they, they basically exhale and go, oh, okay, so we're being real right now. Cool. But I think it's a huge question. That first, that first question you asked, how did I get to be authentic outside of a couple of trusted people? I really, I don't know how another way to live at this point. I really don't because I, I, I spent so long pulling into small living where I had this inner life and inner beliefs and this outer mask and I I can't do that anymore and that's sort of like once you see the light you can't go back (laughs) true I have to live fully authentic and fully me and I, I I you know I sometimes marvel at how out there I put my stuff but I I don't know another way to be I just it's me like I just have to own it, speak it. And if, and I, I don't need to, I don't feel a need to shout my stuff from the rooftops, but if it serves a moment either for myself or for another person, I, it's like, I can't deny it. Like it's just there. It's just the the truth of the moment. Like if it's going to serve a client to let them know I have OCD, I tell them if it's going to serve a friend, I, I tell him or her, you know, or if I am truly anxious, I share that because I don't feel shame anymore about my anxiety. And do you mind if we talk a little bit about the OCD? I mean, I know we've, I know we've, I know we've sort of 
inserted it here and there. And I know yep. a little bit more about it because we've had a chance to talk before this podcast. Mm-hmm. I know you mentioned a few minutes ago, as a mom, having these feelings of wanting them to be safe at all time, like wanting your kids mm-hmm. to be safe at all time. And I think mm-hmm. that's something a lot of parents listening can totally relate with. Sure. Was that something that you realized was tipping to an unhealthy level? And did that tie to when you got diagnosed with OCD? No. Um, so the, the uh, by the time I became a parent, I became a parent. I had been diagnosed with OCD for about three or four years at that point. So I was well on my way to managing it well. Um, I got diagnosed with OCD at 27. And how it played out for me is that in my 20s, um, I sort of got blindsided by developing an eating disorder. And turns out that eating just became a landing pad for my OCD so that underneath all of, you know, the eating disorder stuff was really just OCD. And that's not the case for everybody, but it's part of my story. Um, It was, you know, I had this external showing of what what level of anxiety I had. It it took the form of this eating disorder. Um, And I went and finally sought treatment for it. Um, And on that day when I went to my treatment program, for the eating disorder, I thought to myself, you know what, I'm just going to share these thoughts that I've had for years, and um, I have an inkling they might tell me it was OCD because I had done my own research, but I thought they might not. They might just, they might just decide that I'm actually, like, crazy and tell me there's no hope for me. <laughs> oh. Um, and I say that, you know, I'm kind of laughing, but it's the absolute truth that I just was sort of at my wit's end. Like I need to just, I need to speak what's been going on in my mind for, since the age of seven. So we're talking 20 years and, you know, I'm just either not going to leave this program ever, or they're going to tell me I have OCD. Um, and so, you know, they told me I had OCD. That's the good news. Um, what I, I, I'm, I'm imagining the listeners might be wondering, well, what, what did this OCD look like? Because there's a big misconception of OCD as being all about lining things up or washing your hands or checking and rechecking things and counting. And, and that's not a misconception in the sense that that certainly exists. That is, that is, um, definitely a piece of OCD and for many people the way that it manifests itself. But there is an entire type of OCD that nobody can see. Um, and it's basically, some people refer to it as pure O, pure, pure obsessions. It's basically um, obsessive bad thoughts, quote unquote bad thoughts. And so basically from the age of seven until 27 when I was diagnosed, I feared that I was somehow this terrible person um, because I would have a thought and I would believe it. 
Um, so like, so for the, at the age of seven, I started to, uh, they sort of started in a, in a religious way. I was, um, I'm Catholic and I started to, uh, I just got this like intrusive thought that was like, I don't believe in God. And then I'd be like, <gasps> and it would, I was brought yeah, up Catholic too. Would. So I know the gravity of yeah. which that was probably hitting you. Yes, and I, I it would torture me for a good, you know, that one lasted a good couple of years, and thinking, and I, and I wouldn't utter it to anybody, and I would just go on thinking, well, I'm definitely going to go to hell, like, how, how will I break this news to my parents? Like, and were you how, thinking, but God am, knows, God knows I'm having this thought, too, yeah. now I can't hide it. Yes, and then I'd be like, but I don't believe in God. <gasps> like, it was just this whole cycle. Um, so hearing this example of you as a small Catholic girl thinking, I don't believe in God, <gasps> and having this panicked response, without knowing much about OCD and the physiological effects, I have to imagine, like, were you getting the adrenaline and the cortisol and like that really physical amped up feeling like every time you were having that thought as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was living on edge, but nobody knew that. I was... Because happy. you were the good Catholic girl, right? I was definitely very, very good. And I was, I, um, I was, you know, really sensitive. I was known as a warrior, but I was not known to... Like, I, nobody knew. Nobody would have known. I kept it everything on lockdown, which is why, to get back to your earlier question, I can't live that way anymore. If I feel myself locking down, I'm like, oh, alert, alert. Um, I need to share. I need to speak. Well, you must recognize the energy, too, of what it feels like to mount that defense, right? Like when we are not being yeah. honest with ourselves or with other people, we are mm -hmm. spending energy from our energetic bank account on just trying to keep like our fingers in the dam, basically. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like mm -hmm. you got a taste of that as a little kid, you know, when we seemingly have boundless amounts of energy. But like, as we mm -hmm. get older, what it takes to actually fortify that in any sort of way I see that with my clients in terms of burnout, right? Like, it's yeah. not just like the work stuff. It's the, mm -hmm. I'm working a ton of hours at work. Also, kind of having this thought that maybe I'm in the wrong career, or I just hate this job, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. I need to make some big change. And then the energy it takes to sort of stuff those kind of things back down. Yes. Yeah. It is hard yeah. to and put, I, it's hard to put Jack back in the box, right? Yes. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And I think, you know, as much as um I did hit burnout, teaching was always teaching became the the one place where I felt energized and authentic because I got really depressed. You know, I was I was really at this point struggling with the O C D thoughts, but I had shoved those so far down that I was just on the surface, just, you know, engaged in this eating disorder. And the only place that I really actually still felt energized was my job. So yes, I did reach burnout, but I could still, I could go to work every day and get some 
good feedback for myself from when I was teaching. I felt the most authentic. So how did mindfulness start to take root? Was it something that's always kind of been there or does that tie in in this period of your life as well? So mindfulness, um, and, it was something I circled. Go ahead. And I was going to say, and what does mindfulness mean to you? Because I think it's one of those terms that everyone throws around right now that everyone has right. a different opinion on what that means. So maybe you could speak to that as right. well. Sure, no problem. So mindfulness, I'll start there uh, for me, is being in the present moment, um, no matter what internal or external distractions arise. So being truly present in this, in this moment. And you can do that in a number of ways. You can do that through the sense of touch, through hearing, through sight, um, through anchoring to your breath. But it's being right here, right now. Um, and so for me, I actually um, circled the idea of learning a meditation practice. So I, I should also say that I consider mindfulness a, a something you can practice at any time in the day, right? I can be yes. practicing it right now while I'm speaking to you. I feel my body in the chair. I feel my breath moving in and out. I hear the sound of my voice. I hear the sound of your voice. But meditation is how I improve my capacity to be mindful. So I sit and have a formal meditation practice so that I can be more mindful throughout my day. So I circled the concept of meditation for about five years, starting in my mid-30s. So it was actually well after my OCD diagnosis. Um, and by circling it, I mean like I would buy a book and it would sit on my shelf. <laughs> I, would. I love people's undying belief that books like are osmotically absorbed, right? Like if it's on my shelf, it yes. must mean it's in my head. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, I um, actually think that original book I bought on mindfulness, I still never cracked open. <laughs> Which <laughs> one I, was I it? Do you remember? It, it's, um, I think it's called True Happiness by Sharon Salzberg. I, I hear it's great. I <laughs> <laughs> She's kind of a rock star on the scene. So, yes. Yeah, exactly. So, anyway, I circled it. I would I, I circled meditation and I... I was approaching 40 years old and my therapist said, you know, you should really mark your 40th with something. I think, you know, you, you've just done so much work and what, what if you just marked it with something? And she didn't have any idea what that was, but I knew I said, this is when I'm going to jump into meditation. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm I laughing because we're I, living uh, a parallel life there too. Oh, wow. I, uh, I decided to go on silent retreat. I thought, you know what? The book, on the shelf isn't cutting it. I it sat there for five years. It's quite dusty. I'm going away for a weekend and I'm going to zip it and be quiet for a whole weekend and just immerse myself in it. Um, so that's what I did. I went away for a weekend. I invited one of my brothers and my sister and they said yes. And we went and it was life changing. And so that weekend I, you know, was introduced uh, in a baptism by fire sort of way to meditation. And that sort of was an organic like realization. Oh, this could tie in nicely to village parenting. It's, it's very much tied into my overall mission to help kids and to, um, 
educate the whole child. And so I got my training in teaching a mindful curriculum through mindful schools. Teresa, you mentioned that immersing yourself in this silent retreat was really powerful and and life-changing for you. And it's something Mm -hmm. I don't have any experience in yet. I'm really a functional meditator, right? (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. It's got to fit into the life I'm already living. Mm -hmm. And I I haven't dove in yet to just sort of, I'm going to take myself out of the life I'm living and immerse myself in that way. So I can't speak to it. But it's something I hear a lot. And people are like, it's life-changing. And then Mm -hmm. struggle to describe how. So I'm not trying to put you on the spot and, you know, make you be the poster child or stand on the pedestal of like, here's how the experience of immersing yourself in meditation in this way is. But the question is coming from, because you're a highly verbal and really good communicator, for people who are thinking about it, like what should they know or like what were some some of the tangible takeaways that you noticed for having gone through that experience? So I think the biggest thing that I took from that experience, and now I'm five retreats since, so I've gone every year with my brother and sister. Um, Love it. And... Yes, it's so fun um, and really hard, um, but so fun and so good. Um, so I think the biggest thing was to realize how uh, achievement-oriented of the culture we're living in and that our achievements are not who we are. So Ooh, I feel like I yeah. need to exhale hearing that. Yeah. Yeah, and to realize that we have this moment and that our thoughts aren't who we are, our achievements aren't who we are, and our personality isn't even who we are. That who I am is this core, this this core place inside that's quiet and it's still and it's calm and it's knowing. And that, yes, I have to, you know, live my human life, too. And that will, that will include my personality, and it will include my achievements. But it's not, that's not quite who I am. Teresa, this is really meaningful for me, and I would wager lots of money for any of my past clients that are listening. Mm. For any of my past clients that are listening, this would be really big for them too. And it's funny because I'm, I scribble notes down like while we're talking to try to remind Mm -hmm. me to follow up questions or things like that. Mm -hmm. And I know when you were talking about the three core principles of your work, you know, that the idea that happiness and achievement and the interrelation of those two things is a big piece of that. Mm -hmm. Um, This is really interesting And I know most of your work is with children, but you're also offering up your experience as an adult for me personally. And I think others listening, what have you found helpful to separate achievements from identity? I think it's just that 
daily practice to connect to my authentic self. And so that when I'm, you know, then going to, um, I don't know, do something work-related, then I'm not wrapped up in, am I qualified enough? Or am I, am I, um, am I going, is this client going to believe in what I do? It's like, you know what? This is really just about this moment right now and me doing my best to share my authentic experience and if they like it, then, then great. And if they don't, that's okay too. But I know that if I'm, if I'm being authentic, then I can't go wrong. They're either going to connect with it or not, but it, I'm being authentic. I think I'm with you. Let me try this in a really vulnerable and, and tangible way and see okay. if, if this question is different. And it might be out of your scope, but I, I do think your experience might might speak to it. I know for me, one of the things that I've had to work on a lot, especially in my 20s when I achieved full-on physical, mental, spiritual burnout, I had to look at like what my motivations were a lot of the time. And I think, you know, in my 20s, I began dabbling. It was like, same as you, like, meditation seems like this would be really useful based on everything I'm Mm -hmm. reading. But Mm -hmm. wow, it's miserable to actually sit here for 20 minutes with yourself Mm -hmm. when you're feeling Mm -hmm. really broken. And I I think one of the things that I've had to work on among many, (laughs) right, because we're all a work in process, is I realized how I was parented, and this isn't to throw blame on my parents because they were doing their best. Mm -hmm. But I was really encouraged. Like, if you get straight A's, you'll get a cassette tape. And I love music. So that was like Mm -hmm. a huge bogey. Like every time I brought home straight A's, I got a cassette tape and or Chinese food because I also loved really greasy, Mm -hmm. crappy Chinese food (laughs) as a kid. Um, and my, my dad hated it. So it felt like just like a huge win. Like I'm getting something really valuable because even he's going to eat this. Um, but I recognized later in life and it's something I still, I feel that hook at different points in my life that everything needs to be connected to an, like an achievement and an outcome. Mm. And that's, Mm -hmm very wrapped in my identity. And it's probably also not coincidental that I ended up becoming a CPA and we count and measure things, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like qualitatively and quantitatively, I could decide that I was doing a bad job in whatever I was doing Mm -hmm. at any given moment. And I guess, let me think for a second. I guess I share this because I, I think you're someone who would, would get this. You know, what have you seen in terms of how you're working with children and parenting that we can separate? Like, you can be a happy, fulfilled person mm-hmm. independent of what you're achieving. And that's kind of right. the place that question is coming from for me on a personal yeah. level. Yeah, so... I will say that 
I've spent a lot of time, you know, even prior to learning meditation about understanding that my thoughts aren't who I am, that I'm not this, you know, monster because I had a thought um, or I'm not, you know, I'm, that is not who I am. And so I had a lot of uh, practical practice with identifying, oh, that's an OCD thought and that is not an OCD thought. You know, that's something I can trust versus this, you know, wacky thought that popped into my head that I get to not believe. And so I've had a lot of practical practice with that. And then with meditation to not just categorize my thoughts, but to recognize that like there's this quiet, still place that is like thoughtless. And so I can categorize as, as chatter comes up in my mind, if that's achievement-oriented or if it's my core-oriented. So if I get caught up in, um, you know, an outfit I'm going to wear or how I'm going to look for a certain thing and it's beyond, like, what would I like to wear or what would make me feel good and it starts to get into, well, what will other people be wearing or um, is that appropriate for that, you know, the look I'm going for and it gets like deeper and deeper, then I go, Hmm, that is not my core speaking. That's my, uh, ego, my achievement oriented self that is looking to please others or fill some, fill, check some box off versus something coming from my core self. So another example, like in my work with children, you know, I think we are so, so wrapped up in, um, in for our adult lives, like go, go, go. We're running this rat race that we're, you know, achieving where we're, um, we have letters next to our names. We've got, um, you know, volunteer opportunities and this and that. And we, we achieved this, you know, in our twenties and by 30, we were doing this and, and we're really spoon feeding that to our children, I believe, in this society where we're saying, you know, well, what, what team did you make? And are you specialized in sport by third or fourth grade? Um, you know, it's, oh, it's kind of too late to join this sport because you're already in fourth grade. What? <laughs> what are we doing? Yeah. So when I, as a parent can get wrapped up in, oh, am I not providing my children with enough opportunities to explore their talents? I'm like, what am I doing? That is chatter that belongs in the achievement oriented. That has nothing to do with my children's happiness. My children will be happy if they can emotionally express themselves and tune into what their core self it has nothing to do with you know, what sports team they're on or if they were successful out on the field or if they got, you know, all A's or if they were able to, I don't know, you name it. It just has nothing to do with that. So I, I guess I'm, I'm in my day, I'm categorizing like achievement oriented thinking versus coming from my core authentic self. Got it. So what I'm hearing really in in meditation parlance is this highly personalized, highly evolved, well-practiced version of the noting technique. 
right? Like, because when mm. I meditate, sometimes when I'm losing the plot, right? And I, I love, mm-hmm. I think it was Tim Ferriss that had something that really stuck with me and still sticks with me, especially on bad days, quote unquote, bad days meditating, where I just feel like mm-hmm. all I'm doing is trying to keep the wild horses at bay. That, you know, meditation mm-hmm. is like, 19 minutes of revisiting when you wanted to punch someone who cut you in line, you know, at the bank or a school cafeteria or something like that, you know, from 25 years ago, and then like one minute of actual peace in the process. Mm -hmm. So like Mm -hmm. noting is something that I use a lot at its really Mm -hmm. like most basic level. As a thought sort of drips by my consciousness, I'm like thinking, well, that's thinking. Like when I feel myself trying to yeah. chase a thought, it's like thinking. And if I find myself yeah. thinking about, oh, my neck aches because I dance too much um, at a show last night, you know, like this morning, I kept thinking about that. Like, oh, man, I'm 41. Dancing like makes me achy the next day. Like what a, what's to become of me? You know, that's sort of like... <laughs> feeling thinking feeling thinking (laughs) you know i'm kind of like just sticking a post-it on the back of each of them as they go by but it sounds like you've really figured out how to take that technique and then really just hone that kind of energy and not to overuse the word but be really mindful of like okay core belief that's yep that's achievement and like really being able to just give it a name and I mean, honestly, I, when I, the first time, when I came back from my first retreat, so, um, in full disclosure, I'm a huge Patriots fan Woo! and like watch it. <laughs> yeah. Um, although yeah, I'm not too thrilled with the NFL these days, but I, am a huge Patriots fan and I came back from my first retreat. And my husband had recorded it for me, and he said, we didn't watch it yet. We we saved it for you so you can enjoy it. And I was like, I just don't know why all those men would run around on the field like that. For what? <laughs> what are they trying to achieve? And he was looking at me like, who Where's are my you? wife? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and so I guess that's a, an extreme example of, you know, how I was when I first stepped foot back after being silent and really immersed in that, you know, meditative place. But I guess that's what I, I try to do is just to understand, not not that I don't engage in, you know, watching football, but to remember its place. You know, this is not, it does not need to be all-consuming. And, um Neither does, you know, whether or not I uh, got all the things on my to-do list done or whether or not my, um, you know, what grades my kids got or what teams they're on. Like, it just doesn't matter. Yes. And I know that sounds like a small statement, but I think I hear the existential message behind that little statement. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that's really hard to remember in the day to day, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know about you, but I find myself like sometimes if something happens and, you know, truth be told, we've had a ton of issues 
recording this conversation today, right? And I, th- mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I find myself during the day labeling things sometimes first world problem. Like this is such a first world problem. Yeah. We can't get Skype to work, yeah. right? Like, yeah, right. You know, we have to remember. But what I'm hearing, and I think we're also similar in this regard too, is is the mindfulness practice and bringing it not only to a meditation practice, right? Which I love how you describe Mm -hmm. that as like, it improves your capacity to be mindful. Like that's the Mm -hmm. practice space. It's like a kid going to soccer, Mm -hmm. right? Like they go to practice a couple times a week so they can play a game on the weekend and get better. Right. Right. I think it's so interesting, like what you've described and, and what happens when you also can pull it back into your own life in a really real way. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's helping Mm -hmm. you manage OCD thoughts, which I think when people hear OCD, there's probably a couple tracks. Like one is people use it as this kind of watered down, misunderstood sort of pop culture reference. But then the actual Mm -hmm. disease, like then people think of this like, really extreme version, you know, where you can't stop washing your hands despite your skin peeling off. So I think like, to know that you've been able to really train yourself with lots of practice, and what's possible is really powerful to hear. Right. And, and I guess along with that is to recognize when there's a narrative going on. So you're talking about the level of noting that you've got a thought or you've got a feeling. But then even beyond that, the more you dive into the sort of the story that goes with that thought or feeling, like how you described, oh, I'm 41 and what's to become of me? I'm I just, I'm achy just from dancing. <laughs> like that's all a story, right? Totally. And, and if we, if we, um, you know, this was another gem from that first retreat, uh, that there's a difference between pain and suffering and the pain, pain is inevitable, but suffering is our choice. So, Pain is something, like if I use a really simple example, you know, you could stub your toe and have pain. The suffering would come if we, you know, berate ourselves for being clumsy or wish that the pain would just go away. That's the suffering. Yes. I've found when I've had aches and pains or like injured myself running or things like that, mm-hmm. especially in the last couple of years where meditations become a a daily practice for me or all, Mm -hmm. you know, 99.9% of a daily practice for me. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. not perfect and it's all a practice. But I think, you Mm -hmm. know, spending time with the pain, like I sort of sought Mm -hmm. out some, some meditation techniques around that. And it's amazing when you drop the resistance and drop the storytelling and drop the Mm over-identifying with pain and one of the right. one of the most fascinating examples of this in a real way, if people are just like, "Oh my God, she's full woo today," um, was I did a meditation where it was go into the pain, right? And usually, yeah. like the response, like usually people are thinking, like, "How do I will this pain away? I just want to stop feeling it, like end the suffering." Right. And I approached it as like, "This is happening." I, Mm -hmm. you know, my knee is not cooperating today. Mm -hmm. And then just kind of thought about like, what kind of pain is it? Is it throbbing? Mm -hmm. Is it stabbing? 
Like, and just kind of sitting with, like, what type of pain? Is it a hot pain? Is it a cold pain? Mm -hmm. If it was color, what would the color be? And then it was strange, like, as I went into it and gave it the attention and gave it the room on the radar instead of, like, stop thinking about the pain. Why does my knee hurt? Stop thinking about the pain. Why does my knee hurt? Yeah. And trying to fix it. It was strange, like, within a, a day or so. It was like, oh, huh, totally fine. And I didn't even realize right. then, like, that it actually had gone away at some point. So it's right. it's wild where where this can go and the power that we all have innately mm-hmm. with some with some tools and uh, yeah that i mean that is beautiful and i i i practice that as well of just moving in towards what is difficult what causes pain whether it be a headache whether it be you know a major loss like you just you know, the idea of breathing into it is in some ways counterintuitive um, because we are hardwired to sort of protect ourselves and go into flight or fight. But the more that we can melt into the present moment and know that we will not be uh, pulled over, we will not, we will, we will survive the present moment because all we need to be is in the present moment, then there's such power in that. Um, to give something space to just be is all it really needs. <laughs> yes. And Teresa, I I want to take a little bit of a different turn, but you're, you saying the word sure. hardwired kind of made me think of something. And I realized this is something I've been mulling over a lot and may sort of relate to this, but I also think you are the greatest person I know to maybe bounce this question off that I've been thinking about is this notion of, of play. Right. And Mm -hmm. when you said hardwired, it made me think we're hardwired for all sorts of behaviors. And one of the Mm -hmm. things I've been thinking about a lot is, and I I've talked about it a lot over the past decade, like, the framework that I work with clients is around diet. I say rest, but for me, that's rest and play. And then I look at Mm -hmm. other things like exercise and stress management and social relationships. You are interacting with children a ton and they seem hardwired for play, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're total masters. They don't even have to think about it. I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's an incorrect assumption. But what might we as play-starved adults learn from them? Oh, my kids give me this chance all the time where they're like, Mom, uh, this actually, this this isn't a super recent example, but it sticks out in my mind. Mom, can we just go make some mud pies? And <laughs> I'm like, no. That's all I want to say is no, because in my mind, I'm thinking about the cleanup already or... <laughs> You know, for what? <laughs> what is this going to achieve? You know, it's like that cranky, like, <laughs> achievement-oriented person inside me. Ugh, what's the point? And then I I picture, you know, my friend that I referenced at the beginning who is totally into creative creativity and exploration. And then I think about, like, dropping this need to achieve or, you know, have a purpose for everything. And I just go, yes. <laughs> Go make mud pies. 
And children are the best way to allow ourselves to, for lack of a better word, play around with the concept of playing, to just go kind of follow their lead and go, hmm, you're interested in that? I'm going to get interested in that right next to you, you know? Um, it's, it's really amazing. And, that, you know, talking about succumbing to the moment with your child and just saying, I'm going to meet you where you're at. And right now, that's in the backyard with a mud pie. That's a, such a great example. And I love that you can think about, like, the internal monologue that happens. Like, I'm trying to get the real pie on the table. Like, I've got to clean up. Right. What is the point? <laughs> I don't want to do this right now. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and just to kind of, you know, they are, they are masters at being in the present moment. And that's slowly chipped away by our, you know, society and conditioning. And it's like, no, we gotta, we've got to hold on to that for ourselves and let our kids hold on to that as long as they can. Yeah, it's it's something I've been really fascinated with lately and reading a lot of books on play and I'm like and just trying to understand like how can I bring that more into the work that I do? How can I bring that into my marriage? How can I bring that into my life? Because I think mm-hmm. to your point, we all not all of us, but a large part of us as adults, we run through that same filter that you just described. Like, what's the point? What's the purpose? How long is this going to take? Right. Right. <laughs> right. How long right. do I have to do this? Exactly. Yeah. When, when that can bring us into a really powerful and present flow state, right? I mean, that's what the mm-hmm. research tells mm-hmm. us and a highly creative mm-hmm. state as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just felt like I needed to ask you that question because I can't think of anyone else in in my world or that I've spoken to on the podcast so far that literally gets to be interacting with children in such a, I'm going to say strategic, but that's that doesn't feel like the right word necessarily. I'm sort of fumbling for it. But mm. you get to really witness them in this very observant, but also very educated way. They're, they're fascinating. They're fascinating human beings. <laughs> they are. They really are. And Teresa, I know we have we have covered so much ground, some that I expected, some mm-hmm. that I didn't. And I, I have one more question for you, if you have time. Sure. Yeah. What do you most want La Vital Core Salon listeners to know or to take away from our conversation today? That's a big question. I, I want people to remember that we are not our achievements or our mistakes. Um, and I put mistakes in quotes because I think mistakes get a bad rap. Um, and our kids aren't either. That we have this quiet, intuitive, still, knowing place that is in all of us. Um, and actually, sometimes I, I have this small practice that I do when I'm uh, anywhere, standing in the grocery store, standing in the playground, and I'm like waiting at the deli counter or at the grocery store, and I just look around and I think, like, I don't know everybody's story, but everybody's got this, like, light inside their chest of just, like, that's their basic essence and not all of this rigmarole everybody's trying to, like, manage right now. Um, so that's, that's one thing. It's just to remember that we're all, um, 
we've all got that quiet, intuitive place inside that's truly who we are. And then the second um, would be that you don't have to do things alone. Um, and specifically from the point of, of um, village parenting, you don't have to parent alone. Um, that it's so easy to think that you're the only one struggling with something and you're just not. Um, you don't have to do things alone. And um, I, I, I'm a firm believer that we all uh, share the same story. It's just the details different. You know, we're all walking around struggling and the details of the struggle are different, but we're all connected because we all struggle. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I feel like I could add a bunch of babble and get excited and, and keep going with this, but I want to leave the listeners with your really powerful words. Thank you. Teresa, this has been such a joy and such a lesson. Again, like us having to navigate all sorts of even technology woes this morning. (laughs) It truly, that in and of itself, I wish the audience could have experienced with us because it really, that in itself was a mindfulness practice. And what you've shared and the work that you're doing is so important. And I I think that message of everyone is struggling. And we need, especially in these divisive times to remember that. I mean, that's where, Mm -hmm. that's where we can up our EQ and grow our emotional intelligence Mm -hmm. and practice Mm -hmm. empathy and compassion. Mm -hmm. And all of these things that I'm guessing are very important to you too. And thank you for helping bring some of that out. This has just Mm -hmm. been an amazing conversation for me personally, and I can't imagine that others aren't going to take away a ton as well. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank you, Kara. Thank you so much. Um, And I I, I actually just want to add one other thing, and that is that although, um, you know, I I don't work with people with OCD, I do, um, it's sort of a, a heart mission of mine to help provide resources for people that may be silently struggling with uh, obsessive, quote-unquote, bad thoughts. And so I just want to put that out there to your listening world that, um, you know, people suffer in silence with this all the time, and it can really, it can really bring, bring people to their knees. And so if people are looking for uh, just someone that says that, that they identified, oh my gosh, this person experienced what I'm currently experiencing. Um, and I can point you in the direction of, of resources for that. Um, that's a really important part outside of my business that I just, some sort of a mission in my life. <laughs> a chance to serve and, and a chance it. to serve. Teresa, thank you for your generosity. I am going to include the website to Village Parenting, which has your, I believe your email and phone number are both there so that people can find you. All of that will be in the show notes. And if you want to share any of the OCD resources, I'm I'm happy to include links to some of those as well so people can find it and find you. But again, thank you so much. Thank you, Kara. Take care. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you.
Hey everyone, it's Kara again. Thank you so much for listening and sticking around until this part of the episode. All of the resources that we mentioned, including Teresa's website and all the ways to connect with her easily on social media, all can be found in one place in the show notes that live on levitalcoresalon.com. That's L-E-V-I-T-A-L-C-O-R-P-S-S-A-L-O-N.com. I know, not the easiest website. Hindsight is twenty twenty. I also want to remind you that new shows roll out on the second and fourth Wednesdays of each month. If you don't want to have to remember that fact, there is an easy way to remedy that. You can do two things. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can hop on the Levital Core Salon newsletter, which you can find at the same website, levitalcoresalon.com, and you'll receive an email one to two times a month tops. If you think something that Teresa and I talked about can inspire or help educate another woman in your life, please share this episode. Even sharing it with one person. Sharing this episode with even one person may change their life in a way that you can't even predict. I've seen some pretty wild stuff happen in my work, and I'm sure Teresa can say the same about her work. Don't be stingy with this show. Please share it. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, I'm grateful for Teresa being here and giving her time to me and to all of you so that we can learn from her experience. I'm grateful for Sandra and Brett for bringing Teresa into my world. And I'm super grateful for all the people that have made or contributed to this show in terms of guests, but also behind the scenes, producer Craig works really hard on this show. Darlene Victoria helps keep everything on the rails and keep me on schedule and making sure all the little bits and pieces get done. I also want to thank Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and Mean for writing my theme song. And the high dials are the ones who perform it. I hope you dig it, but it's a song that I love jogging to, and it makes me feel like some of my personality has made it to this show. Or at least like the loopy, goofy rock and roll love inside anyways. Wow, I feel like I'm super chatty today, listeners. One more thing. Don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you.